please stand for the reading of God's word from Revelation 21, verses 6 through 8. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is a word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Welcome again, particularly if you're new, glad to have you with us. Uh, If you weren't here at the beginning of the service, I'm Travis, I'm the pastor here. Um, As you just heard, this morning we are talking somewhat about hell. You're welcome. Maybe some of you are just coming back to the church for the first time in a long time or the first time in a new year. Why are we talking about hell today? Uh, Well, I didn't pick it out just for you. I had no idea you'd be here, so I'm not trying to do that to you. Uh, But we are in week two of a five-part series in Revelation 21 and 22, calling All Things New. Now, we're focusing here on Scripture's very last chapters. This is the end of the story. This is where the whole thing, from the very beginning in Genesis all the way to the end, goes. It's, it's It's the pinnacle of the story, the resolution. And what we see at the resolution of Scripture's story is a vision of new heavens and a new earth, uh, of a new city and a new dwelling of God with people, a new reality where things are are different and yet there's some continuity between what we know here and what seems to be in the future. Though these chapters are only uh, a preview, it's as if you got just a 30-second snippet of a movie. It's meant to get your curiosity going, but it doesn't tell you the whole story. So there are some things here that we can't unpack. There are some mysteries and some language that aren't meant to be untangled in this time, but that's part of the point. It's actually meant to make us curious. Uh, to make us wonder and to get us dreaming a little bit about what this life with all things made new, our our relationships, our world, ourselves, what that might look like. It's meant to draw us out into that curiosity that that future might start shaping our present reality, might shape us in the process. But as we move here into these uh, later verses of Revelation Revelation 21, uh, 6 through 8, we see that these chapters picture of a new life is also, as the whole book of Revelation is, if you get into it, about two competing priorities, about two rival kingdoms, and it challenges you to say, here are two ways of life, two realities to which do you want to belong? What costs are you willing to pay to belong to that reality. Our text today presents just such a comparison and challenge as is true of the whole book of Revelation. 
inviting us to long for ourselves made new, but to also recognize the things that will not make us new in the end, to challenge us, to push us a little bit. And so I want to explore what these verses mean for us by looking at three things. The God who gives refreshing in verse 6, who receives or inherits that refreshing in verse 7, and who does not and why in verse 8. So the God who gives refreshing, who receives that and who does not. Before we get into these things, would you bow your heads and pray with me one more time and ask the Lord to fill up our hearts and our time. Father, we thank you that you are not afraid to speak to us about difficult things, to warn us even about things that are hard, about things that may challenge us, that may frustrate us, that you are willing to speak a difficult word to us rather than lose us. You are willing to enter into confrontation that you might have resolution, that we might be reconciled to you. So we pray, I pray for all the ways that our hearts are unreconciled to you and to one another this morning, that you would give us a courage to be reconciled, that you would give us the strength to come out of darkness and into light, that you would let us be a people who really start to be free. So we ask that you would do what I cannot, that you, Holy Spirit, would move in the ways that you alone can move, that you would call out to hearts that they might hear you this morning. Would you be here in your power, in your grace, in your goodness? In your name we pray, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, feel free to have those open. We'll be going through these few verses together. There should be a Bible in the pew pew in front of you if you need one. But we'll start here in verse 6, looking at the God who gives refreshing. Verse 6 describes this God, describes Jesus Christ as the Alpha and Omega, those first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Another way of saying, as our translation also says, the beginning and the end. It's sort of a poetic way of saying, actually, that God, that Jesus is all things. He is all in all. He is the source of life itself. He is what has begun it, and he is what will bring it to a conclusion. He is the one from whom all things come. It's as this source, then, this all in all of life, that verse 6 speaks of Christ about giving water from the spring of life freely to the thirsty. In God's kingdom, then, the thirsty, those who are longing for something, actually receive what they're longing for. They have their thirst satisfied from the very source of life himself. But who, Revelation seems to ask us time and again throughout the book, and I want to ask us this morning, who is really thirsty for the life that comes from God? Are you thirsty for the life that comes from God? As Alexander Schmemann, an Orthodox priest who's now passed on and with the Lord, explains we are actually all of us thirsty, or as he says in his book, hungry for God. Everyone, the entirety of humanity, has this thirst, this hunger for God. He says in his book, For the Life of the World, he says the Bible actually begins with man as a hungry being. 
Hunger or thirst is one of the first ways that we are actually described in all of Scripture. If you go to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 29, God says, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. We were made as creatures designed to be hungry, designed to have needs, and designed actually to have those needs met through God's provision in our world. And Schmemann goes on to explain that in the Bible, the food that man eats, the world of which he must partake in order to live, is actually given to him, not as a simple necessity, but actually as something much greater, as communion with God himself through these created things. He says, all that exists is God's gift to man, and it all exists to make God known to man to make man's life in its entirety from eating and sleeping and breathing into communion with God. He says it is divine love made food. I love that. Made life for man. In other words, we were made hungry and thirsty, and our very hunger and thirst are given to us as a means of knowing, of having connection to God. Our desires are meant to draw us actually into life with him. They're not meant to be an end in and of themselves. So so Shmemen says, and Scripture would agree, that we are all actually, even from the very beginning, thirsty. We were made thirsty. And here in verse 6 is Jesus, the very source of life himself, the thing that we were made to thirst for, saying that he is happy to meet our desires happy to fulfill our thirst. We talk a lot about fulfillment in our culture. Talk a lot about thirst and longing, about searching for the things that would make us whole and happy and authentic. I think oftentimes if we listen and even if we're honest with ourselves, we do that, we talk about those things as if God does not want us to actually satisfy our longings. That God wants to keep us from those things. That's a prevailing notion of our culture. That God, that God gets in the way. He is an archaic holdover of a time where people were not willing to be free. That God doesn't want you to have the longings of our hearts. He's begrudging at best or incompetent or just absent at worst. But Revelation says something different. Revelation says you were made to long for fulfillment by God, and God delights to fulfill you. He stands ready. Fulfillment is actually his idea. Hunger and longing were actually his idea. These things were made to find their resolution in him. God is not opposed to longing, to desire. He actually gave you desire gave you longing for life. The question that Revelation poses is whether you are willing to actually have your desires met in Him. Are you willing to have your thirst quenched by Him, or do you prefer trying to find your thirst met in places that are ultimately just dry wells? Are you trying to eat plastic food from a play school table when God meant you to have a rich banquet? 
Scripture says you are hungry, you are thirsty for God, and to those He made to be thirsty for Him, He delights to offer life, to quench our thirst. But have we lost our taste for what really satisfies? Have we become accustomed to drinking dust from an empty well and eating plastic from a display table so, so long that we don't remember anymore what real refreshment is like? Have we come to that point spiritually where we are comparing types of plastic fruit to each other to say, which do you like better? Which kind of dust do you like drinking better? Have we gotten to that point where we are all sharing the same miserable experience and have forgotten to hunger, have not let ourselves long for something so much deeper and fuller, something that doesn't run us ragged and take so much from us, something that doesn't wear us down and tear us apart and contort us? Have we lost our hunger, our taste for a spring of water that actually gives life. Christ invites you to come to Him and to truly be refreshed, not to say that you would get there and be disappointed, but to get there and you would be surprised. I didn't even remember that this is what fulfillment feels like. I didn't even remember that this is what life could be like. I couldn't even conceive of that. He is not saying come and be disappointed, but come and really finally be refreshed. But the passage also talks about who takes up this offer, who receives this life, this thirst, quenching refreshment from God. To move into our second point, we look at verse 7 here, and it says, those who receive are, as our translation says, the one who conquers. I think it's maybe a little better translated as the victor or the one who overcomes. Has a little less baggage to translate it that way. Uh, it's a phrase that's describing someone who stands up to a challenge and who perseveres, who is, as one commentator explains, victorious over the world with both its temptations and its sufferings. It's someone who resists the countless calls of the world to try and find our thirst that we can't escape met somewhere that ultimately won't fulfill it. You might say, okay. But can, can I really be that person? If we're honest, life is really hard. There are so many ways that we are like ancient Israel. We are happy to stop along the way where Moses is up on the mountain with God receiving more than they can conceive of and we are down on the plain thinking this is never going anywhere. We better just settle for something else. It's been too long. I can't wait this long, God. I'm just going to take things into my hands and do it for myself. Can I really overcome to get these deeper things? Can I stop myself from continually settling for spiritual junk food? The answer is yes. Why? Well, verse 7 actually ties back, if you were to flip back to chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation and John's letters, Christ's speech to John to share with the seven churches that were a microcosm of the whole church. And those invitations in those letters are all about calling the church to either remain faithful or to come back to faithfulness. And in those invitations, Jesus makes the same life-giving promise of fulfillment each time. He says, to the one who overcomes. 
I will give several promises to the one who overcomes. Now, interestingly, that promise of to the one who overcomes, those promises of fulfillment were made to each of the seven churches that John writes to. And if you look at those seven churches, it is not an all-star cast. It is not the B team. These are people who you would think ought not qualify for the Christian life and are yet somehow under the grace of God. These promises of to the one who overcomes go to the very people who seem like they have zero chance of ever overcoming. So that means verse 7's call, Jesus' call to overcome, to come and receive this life from him is available to everyone no matter your spiritual condition. This is not just a call to certain kinds of people who have gotten their act together. Revelation itself is clear about that. The invitation goes to everyone, so it's attainable by everyone, even the most broken of us. Because the call to be the victor, to persevere in finding life in God despite the temptations and the trials and the suffering that our world and our culture is going to bring to us, the call to be that victor is not answered by our being strong, but by dying to ourselves, by letting go. The way we overcome in the Christian life is not by having strength in ourselves, it is by dying to ourselves. So you can overcome the world's calls to walk away from God and to find life somewhere else, not because you are strong, but because all you have to do, really, is come to the end of yourself. If you feel like you have come to the end of yourself, facing some sin in your life, some brokenness in your life, some relationships that are really not what you would like them to be, if you have come to the end of yourselves in these things, all you have done is come to the beginning point of God overcoming in your life. The call to overcome in Christianity is not to be strong enough on your own. That's moralism. To do it right, to get it right, to have it all in you, that is not gospel. That is not what God expects of you. If he did, Jesus would never have come. The call is not to be able to do it yourself, which means we can overcome most truly not by being the victor ourselves, but actually by having a victor, by having someone who overcome for us. And Jesus is most certainly the victor in this passage. He's someone who is standing up and saying, it is finished. It is done. That means there is no more. It's settled we are not doing anything else because I have finished it. There are no more challenges or challengers. There are no more threats or danger. It is finished. This is Jesus authoritatively standing over all things, a new heaven and a new earth, and saying, it is finished. I have done it. I'm in control. And he stands exactly as this victorious conqueror in Revelation, as the, the power for life that we need, not through coming to earth in awe-inspiring wonder that we saw back in Revelation 1. Now, if you look at Revelation 5, when it talks about the splendor of the Lion of Judah, this conquering king, the shock that John gives us is that the description he sees when he turns to look is of a lamb that has been slain. 
It's been sacrificed. It's a picture of weakness. Revelation makes clear that Christ overcame all the brokenness of the world, not by being majestic, but by being slain, by being broken for us. Likewise, we overcome. We keep our thirst for him rather than for dust and emptiness through his being slain for us. You overcome not by anything else in this life. The Christian does not overcome the temptations and the trials of the world by anything in them, but solely by the power of Jesus Christ through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit living in you. You overcome by dying to yourself and letting Christ, the true victor, who was slain that you might live, that all our sins might be put to death, through him living in you. That's why it's available even to the least of these, even to the worst, because it doesn't matter how bad you are. It matters how good he is. Amen? It doesn't matter how bad you are. It matters how good he is. We overcome not by being strong, but by dying to our own efforts to find life. That's the temptation of the world, is to do it your way. Confessing just that we aren't strong enough to get there. And when we do that, you're there. You have arrived at the point of overcoming. The place of victory just by relying on Him. And more than that, Christ is the one who actually carries you to that place. That's how this promise of refreshment is available to anyone, because it doesn't take strength from you. And yet some, as our text points out, choose to rely on themselves. Do not rely on Jesus in the end. This is where the comparison and the challenge of Revelation comes home, where it makes us say, which kingdom will you choose? What price do you want to pay? So it brings us to our third point here. Who does not receive this life, this refreshment from God, and why in verse 8? That verse reveals that though everyone is thirsty by our nature, not all of us come to Christ to find refreshment. That's the reality that's being described here, that, that we can't escape searching for refreshment. We just end up looking for it in the wrong places, a place that looks like life, but ultimately that only leads to suffering and pain and death. That's the reality that verse 8 is trying to describe there when it talks about these painful things, lake that burns with fire and sulfur, the second death. It's trying to describe a road that looked like life but ended in emptiness, chasing what you think is true life, but is actually death and futility in the end, and doing that chase over and over and over and over for eternity. You see, the picture of life in Scripture is not that it starts and stops, but that it's on a trajectory. And so what is true of you in this life becomes ultimately more true of you in the life to come. If I am searching and searching and searching for things that are not God here, I will search and search and search for things that are not God in eternity. 
And the way C.S. Lewis talks about this, it says that some, some vice of mine, some fault of mine that may not be that bad in 70 or 80 years, give it a million years of searching and walking down that road, the best way to describe what that existence looks like would absolutely be hell. It's chasing things that are actually death but look like life. And verse 8 gives a kind of summary list of those who are chasing after things that are ultimately death. And if we had more time, we'd go into each of these descriptions here, but they're summed up, I think, fairly well by just that first descriptor. It says the cowardly. I want to talk about that as actually an interesting insight that, that I took away this week into the hearts of those who don't receive refreshing from God, who are looking for life for somewhere else. If that's you, maybe this morning, hear about what, what Scripture might suggest might be true underneath these things for you, because I think it can reveal some things for all of us. It seems actually really appropriate that, that those who don't take this life, this refreshing from Christ, are described first and foremost as cowardly, because the opposite of cowardice is courage, and being a victor certainly requires courage. It entails facing a challenge, fighting a battle, recognizing a cost to be counted and a price to be paid, and making a commitment that requires risk to yourself. But when we are cowardly, when we do shrink back, and we all shrink back at moments in life, when we do that, our greatest and only real commitment in that moment is to me. That's the highest commitment that I have at that moment. Not to anything outside me. I will pay no price to risk anything that would have to do with me. Cowardice is ultimately self-preservation at all costs. It's a fear to lose ourself, a fear to risk ourselves at all. I don't know about you, but I tend to think about searching for another source of fulfillment in life as something other than cowardice, something other than fear or self-preservation. I tend to think of it as, as maybe pride or, or impatience, a lack of discipline, vanity. But if it's the victor who receives true fulfillment, then the opposite picture, which verse 8 spells out in many ways, is a person captive to a fear of losing themselves. That's the person who doesn't find true fulfillment. That's the person, the text says, who kills, who lies, who becomes... Uh, detestable, which is maybe better translated corrupted. They become the thing that they do. So perhaps a challenge of revelation in light of the way that we might normally think about chasing things that are not God-defined life, the challenge is to make us ask, in all our desire for finding fulfillment outside of God, is it possible that we are not being brave and honest and just true with ourselves about what we are pursuing, but actually, at a much deeper level, fearful and cowardly. Is it possible, I wanna, is it possible that we are really just afraid in chasing those things which aren't God to give us fulfillment? Is it possible that we are afraid to step outside ourselves and lose control?
to see what happens when we lay down our life and we don't call the shots anymore. Perhaps the prevailing problem of our age is not this ideology or that, not this political party or that, not this way of approaching life or that, but that we have lost the courage for true self-sacrifice, for laying ourselves down, laying our opinions down, laying our demands down, laying our insisting on a certain way of doing things that makes sense to me, laying that control down. What if the problem isn't that we haven't paid enough attention to our true selves, but that we have lost our God-given courage to die to ourselves in the most difficult moments? Because the truth is, sin steals your courage. Look at Adam and Eve. Think about that story. When they did precisely what God told them would kill them and make their lives miserable, did they courageously stand up in front of God and say, this is what we have done? No, what does the story say? It says they hid themselves when they heard him. When he asked them and found them what they, what they did, they blamed someone else. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. Sin stole not just their connection to God, but their courage for something greater than self-preservation. They shrunk down into just preserving the self. And in that, they find death and not life. And sin does the same thing for us. It teaches us to fear, to listen to Satan's lies like Adam and Eve did to follow the murderer and the sorcerer and the idolater and the detestable one that he is by focusing solely and at all costs on ourselves. You were made hungry, thirsty for something more than you, for something more than just me. You were made hungry and thirsty for God, yet fear of self-preservation drives us to look for life in the place where I'm thirsty. It's like looking for water in an empty glass. It's just not there. And yet that's what self-preservation does. It keeps looking deeper and deeper into an empty glass for something that is not there. How can we both be thirsty and the answer to our thirst? The glass is not what makes you refreshed. It's what holds the water. In the same way, ourselves are not what refresh us. They are what hold the spirit. God's presence, the animating breath of life. Man was made out of dust, out of nothing that had life in it. It was God's breath, something outside of us that animates us when we turn in on ourselves to find fulfillment, to find animation, to find authenticity. We miss the very fact that we are meant to be something that holds something beyond us that gives us the deeper fulfillment that we're longing for, and that's in Christ, outside of ourselves, who died for you to give you, among many things, back your courage. He is how even we who are cowardly, who who will not let go of ourselves, who will make no commitments aside from ourselves, He is how we learn to die 
to ourselves and find life somewhere else. See, Scripture shows the path to fulfillment is not, it's not the elevation, it's not the protection of the self at all costs. It's actually dying to yourself. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let them take up their cross and die to themselves daily. The way that we find life in the Christian life is so counterintuitive to anything else the world offers. The way that you find life is through death. Because that's exactly the way that Jesus won it for us. It's dying to ourselves and living to Christ who had the courage to die for us that gives life. Christ is our victor who makes us overcome. So by way of application, I want to invite you to do two things, to take your thirst to Him and to find your courage in Him. By the power of the Holy Spirit that makes you able to do this, take your thirst, that eternal longing that God set in our hearts, meant as communion with Him, take that back to the one place that it can really be fulfilled. How many hours in the day are we spending searching for things that just don't fulfill when the day is over? Because we wake up and do it again and it still feels somehow hollow. Take the desires of our hearts. Come to know Him, if you never have, as the one who gave you that thirst and who actually intends to fulfill it. He's not trying to hold something back from you. He wants you to have the deepest things. Trust beyond what our eyes can see or what our brain can conceive of because the thirsty soul in the desert can easily imagine a mirage and wander miles and miles of something that searching only proves to be emptiness. Scripture says you are a thirsty soul in the desert. Don't let yourself be deceived by sitting only in the residence of what I can control, conceive of, or consider. Let the rescue come from the outside. Trust, repent of the ways that you've been taking your thirst somewhere else, the ways that you've been wanting to be in control, that you've been refusing to step into the center and just be held by God. See if you might find refreshment in Him in some way this week. Risk it a little bit. What would it look like to let go of control of just one thing? And let God hold you in that. And second, find your courage. What might it look like for Christ to make you new this year by giving you the courage to live for something more than you? To take the risk of actually dying to yourself in a new way. Not in an old way, not in a way that you are comfortable with, but in a way that makes you uncomfortable. Just think about it. What's one way that the Holy Spirit is bringing to your attention that you are living perhaps out of fear, wrapped up in, around yourself, not willing to die? Where is he holding out courage to you for the taking? I want you to, to try this. This is something that's been helping me this week. When you are frustrated, when you are tempted to sin, think about finding your courage. Ask God, give me the courage to meet this moment with the ability to die to myself. Give me back the courage that I lost. God, meet me with your courage. Turn to God in the midst of the things where you feel like, mm, I really want to light that person up. 
I really want to press send on that email. I want them to know how badly they have disappointed me. Or I just want to give them the cold shoulder. Ask God to give you the courage to be gentle, to be understanding. Find that strength in Him because you do not need to be strong on your own. He is able. Let Him overcome. Let's pray. I'd like to leave a little space for you to to interact with God in your prayer about some of the things that we've just heard. So I I invite you to, to thank God for being able to satisfy your soul's thirst, that He doesn't give you a deep eternal longing, that He doesn't tend to just completely fulfill. Maybe confess the ways that, that you've looked for that life, for that, that longing to be fulfilled somewhere else that's really just a dry well and you just keep coming back. Ask Him to, to change you, to lead you out of that, to give you a taste for something new, to teach you how to die to yourself as He died to Himself. Let's pray. Jesus, would you be the one who overcomes in our lives, even overcomes ourselves, overcomes our best efforts and our worst. Would you rise up in us that we might be raised from the dead in you, both in the life to come and here in our hearts in this life. In your name we pray, amen.